Well, folks, we're turning to John's Gospel, chapter 11, for our first reading. There's a couple of passages of Scripture I want to read from tonight, but first of all, I want to turn to the Gospel of John and the 11th chapter. John's Gospel, chapter 11, and verse 1. And this brings us to the interesting account concerning Lazarus. Now a certain man was sick named Lazarus of Bethany, the town of Mary and her sister Martha. It was that Mary which anointed the Lord with ointment and wiped his feet with her hair, whose brother Lazarus was sick. Therefore his sisters sent unto him, saying, Lord, behold, he whom thou lovest is sick. When Jesus heard that, he said, This sickness is not unto death, but for the glory of God that the Son of God might be glorified thereby. Now Jesus loved Martha and her sister and Lazarus. When he had heard therefore that he was sick, he abode two days still in the same place where he was. Then after that saith he to his disciples, Let us go into Judea again. His disciples say unto him, Master, the Jews of late sought to stone thee, and goest thou thither again? Jesus answered, Are there not twelve hours in the day? If any man walk in the day, he stumbleth not, because he seeth the light of this world. But if a man walk in the night, he stumbleth, because there is no light in him. These things said he, and after that he saith unto them, Our friend Lazarus sleepeth, but I go that I may awake him out of sleep. Then said his disciples, Lord, if he sleep, he shall do well. Howbeit Jesus spake of his death, but they thought that he had spoken of taken of rest of in sleep. Then said Jesus unto them plainly, Lazarus is dead, and I am glad for your sakes that I was not there, to the intent ye may believe. Nevertheless, let us go unto him. And then if we go down to verse 43 in the same chapter, John chapter 11 and the verse 43. And when he thus had spoken, he cried with a loud voice, Lazarus, come forth. <coughs> and he that was dead came forth, bound hand and foot with grave clothes, and his face was bound about with a napkin. Jesus saith unto them, Loose him, and let him go. Then many of the Jews which came to Mary, and had seen the things which Jesus did, believed on him. Amen. And then we want to turn back to Luke's Gospel in the chapter 7. Luke's Gospel and the chapter 7. And we want to take up our reading at the verse 11. Luke chapter 7. And we're reading from the verse 11. And it came to pass the day after that he went into a city called Nain. And many of his disciples went with him and much people. Now when he came nigh to the gate of the city, behold, there was a dead man carried out. The only son of his mother, and she was a widow, and much people of the city was with her. And when the Lord saw her, he had compassion on her, and said unto her, Weep not. And he came and touched the bier, and they that bare him stood still. And he said, Young man, I say unto thee, Arise. And he that was dead sat up and began to speak, and he delivered him to his mother. And there came a fear on all, and they glorified God saying that a great prophet is risen up among us, 
and that God hath visited his people. And then we'll just turn over one chapter to chapter 8, Luke's Gospel, chapter 8. And we're going to break into the chapter at the verse 49. <clears throat> Luke chapter 8 and the verse 49. While he yet spake, there cometh one from the ruler of the synagogue's house, saying to him, Thy daughter is dead. Trouble not the master. But when Jesus heard it, he answered him, saying, Fear not, believe only, and she shall be made whole. And when he came into the house, he suffered no man to go in, save Peter and James and John, and the father and the mother of the maiden. And all wept and bewailed her. But he said, Weep not, she is not dead, but sleepeth. And they laughed him to scorn, knowing that she was dead. And he put them all out, and took her by the hand and called, saying, Maid, arise. And her spirit came again, and she arose straightway, and he commanded to give her meat. And her parents were astonished, but he charged them that they should tell no man what was done. Amen. And we trust the Lord will bless the reading of his word for his own namesake. Let's just bow together in a brief word of prayer, and then we want to look at these passages of Scripture this evening, please. Our gracious God and eternal Father in heaven, Lord, we thank thee that we do come even on this resurrection day into thy presence. Lord, we thank thee indeed that thou art the giver of life. Thou art the one who said, I have come that I might give them life and give them life more abundantly. And Lord, we thank thee that there is that abundant life in Christ. There is that new life. There is that eternal life. And Lord, we pray tonight that thou would just come and oh, that thou would breathe upon each and every one of us that even this very night, Lord, thou would draw us to thyself, and that, Lord, we might indeed experience the very life that there is in Christ. To that end we do pray, empty us now of sin and of self, cleanse us thoroughly with thy blood, anoint us with the fullness of the Holy Ghost, and grant that help and that power, and that fire that cometh from heaven, for we ask it tonight, in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. I wonder if you've ever heard the name of a man by the name of Jeremy Bentham. You probably haven't. Jeremy Bentham was an English philosopher. Uh, he was an economist and jurist. And to be quite honest, he was a very odd person. Very strange fellow indeed. Now he died many years ago, uh, back on June 6th, uh, 1832. He died at the age of 84. And in accordance with his wishes, his body was dissected in the presence of his friends. Now wouldn't you love to be on the friends list of Mr. Bentham? <laughs> So he's died and he wants to have his body dissected in front of his friends. His skeleton is now kept in a glass case in uh, University College in London. His skeletal remains are fully clothed and there's also a wax head that has been provided and placed upon it because the original one was mummified. Now before he died he bequeathed a large monetary gift to an English hospital but he did it under one specific stipulation. And that stipulation was that whenever the board of the hospital met, his remains were to be brought to the boardroom, placed at the head of the table, and indeed for him to be there at every board meeting. And so for more than 100 years, the secretary of the board has added to the board minutes a single line, Jeremy Bentham, present but not voting. Now, how would you like to sit in those board meetings? I don't know what the committee meetings are like here, but imagine having a dead man wheeled in and sitting there. And yet, when we think about it, when we come and apply the Bible to it, you and I go to work with dead people every day of our lives. We pass dead people in the streets, 
in shops. We sit beside them in restaurants. You may be living next door to a dead person. You may even be sitting beside a dead person right now in this meeting this evening. You see, when we come to speak about the dead, we're speaking here about the spiritually dead. Because if a person's not saved, the truth of the Bible is that they're spiritually dead. And by that, what we mean is that they're dead to God and they're dead to the very things of God. They don't have that spiritual, eternal and new life of Christ abiding within them. Now, of course, that's the way that every one of us were born into this world. We're born spiritually dead because all men are born of Adam's race and therefore we're born indeed spiritually dead. I used to be spiritually dead. Every believer in this meeting can look back to a time before they were converted. And before their conversion, there was no spiritual life in them. And you find that the Bible speaks in Ephesians chapter 2 about how before we were saved, we were spiritually dead. Because it says in Ephesians 2 and verse 1, And you hath he quickened who were dead in trespasses and sins. And that truth is one that's repeated and taught again and again in the Bible. For instance, in 1 Timothy chapter 5 and verse 6, Paul wrote to young Timothy and he wrote these words, But she that liveth in pleasure is dead while she liveth. So it's possible to have spiritual life, for a person to be walking, to be talking, to be breathing, but spiritually to have no life in them whatsoever. However, whenever we come as repentant sinners to Christ, the Apostle Paul says that we're quickened. We're not only told in Ephesians 2 and 1 that we're quickened, but in Ephesians 2 and 5, it says, Even when we were dead in sins, hath he quickened us together with Christ, by grace ye are saved. And so therefore that little word quickened means to be made alive. It describes bringing someone back from the dead and giving them that new life in Christ. Now that's exactly what happened to me back on the 24th of May, 1986, when I got saved. Prior to that, I thought I was living. I was walking, I was talking, I was going to work every day, and I thought I was living. But that day that I got saved, I realized the great contrast that there was between the old life that I used to live and the new life that I now have in Christ. I was, as Paul described, dead in trespasses and sins. But that moment that I put my faith in Christ, I was quickened by his saving power and received that new life of Christ within me. And that's what changes a Christian from the inside out. When you come to study the Pharisees, they were looking for change from the outside in. As long as the outside looked good, didn't matter what the inside looked like. But when it comes to the Lord, the Lord reverses it. And the Lord says, it's what is within that's important. Out of the abundance of the heart, man speaketh. <coughs> and you find that in these three passages of scripture that we've just read together tonight, we see three different occasions that are recorded in the Bible of when the Lord Jesus Christ raised someone from the dead. There was the daughter of Jairus in Capernaum. There was the widow's son in Nain. And there was Lazarus in Bethany. And on each of these occasions, it gives us a wonderful picture of the new life that is offered to us in Christ. And tonight I want us to look at all three of these examples. I was thinking indeed about the times when the Lord rose people from the dead and the different occasions we could look at. 
But I thought I'd be very generous to myself tonight, and rather than just speak on one, I'll just take all three. And I want to look at all three of them this evening. And it's wonderful because when you look at these examples, and you look at the new life that is offered in Christ, you see, if we're not saved, this is what the Lord can do for us. Now, first of all, let's think about the experience of a new life. Each of the three people that we've read about in the Bible experienced a new life when they were raised from the dead. Now, I think you would agree with me that what happened to those people was indeed a miraculous experience. The Lord Jesus Christ performed many miracles during his time upon this earth. The four Gospels give us account after account of some of the miracles that he performed. But it doesn't record all of them. The Bible tells us there wouldn't be enough books to record all the miracles that the Lord Jesus Christ did. But we can read about how the Lord healed those who were blind. He healed those who were deaf. He cured those who had leprosy and withered hands. And there's a long list of miracles that the Lord Jesus Christ performed. But to me, the greatest miracle that he ever performed was the miracle of raising someone from death back to life. Just think about it. Lazarus, he'd been dead for four days. But when the Son of God spoke to him, when he spoke those words, Lazarus, come forth, Lazarus walked out of the tomb. Now, that's an amazing thing when you think about it. The widow's son, when you think about him, he was being carried to his place of burial. But when the Saviour came along to that funeral procession, and he simply touched the coffin, and he said, Young man, I say unto thee, arise, that young man woke up from his sleep of death. And then when you look at the daughter of Jairus, um, you find the Lord took her by the hand and he said to her, Maid, arise. And she stepped back into life. And thus in all three of these incidents, we see a great miracle. Yeah, we see even the greatest of miracles when the Lord's not just healing someone who's sick, but he's raising them from death unto life. And no doubt to heal someone of deafness or blindness is a great miracle. To restore a, a withered hand or cure someone of leprosy is a great miracle. But to raise someone from the dead is an even greater miracle. And believer as a Christian, God has done many wonderful things for you and I. But the greatest miracle of all was when he saved us and he lifted us up from spiritual death and brought us to that new life, which is ours in Christ. As the little hymn says, there's a long parade of miracles, and it's led by a wonderful king. I'm so glad that I'm one of those miracles, the miracles of Jesus, my king. Do you know if you're in this meeting tonight and you're saved, you're a miracle. Because what was done in your heart was, do was done by the Lord, and what nobody else could do, only God could do what, it, what has been done for you. The Lord Jesus did for us what no one else could do. He did for us what we could never do for ourselves. When we were dead, he gave us new life. And that was a miraculous experience. But I can also testify tonight from personal experience that it was also a marvellous experience. And I'm sure that if we could interview each one of the three people that the Lord Jesus raised back to life, even in the accounts that we've read, that they would all say that there was nothing greater that ever happened in their life before. 
They would say it was the greatest day of their lives. As for me, the greatest day of my life was that Saturday morning when I got saved. It was the red letter day of my life. You know, there have been, when you look back over your life, there are many special days. You can look back indeed to many wonderful things in your life from the the day you get married, to the day you have your first child, to the day you have your first grandchild, you can go over all these wonderful days in your life. But as wonderful as all those are, the most wonderful of all is that day when you get saved. It was that day for me, that Saturday, when the Saviour quickened me from life unto death. And it was the greatest day of my life. As the hymn writer puts it, Oh, happy day, happy day, when Jesus washed my sins away. I was reading about a minister who had the privilege of visiting the little Methodist church there in Colchester, England, where Charles Spurgeon was saved. There's a little plaque marking the exact place where Spurgeon was sitting in that church that day that he got saved. The visiting minister, he sat down in the same spot where Spurgeon had sat, that day that he got saved and he sat there and he thought about the conversion of Charles Spurgeon. He said it was a very special moment. It was a moving experience for him. But he said what caught his attention was the fact that the minister said, however, as I sat there, the Spirit of God began to speak to my heart. And to say, you think that it was a great thing that I did for Charles Spurgeon, don't you? But I did the same thing for you that I did for Spurgeon. And then he wrote, I confess that I lost all thought about Spurgeon then getting saved. And he said, all I could do was praise the Lord for saving me. And every believer who's experienced the new birth, every believer who's experienced new life in Christ has had the same miraculous and marvelous experience and isn't it true, Christian, that there have been some great days in your life, some wonderful days in your life. But there's that one day you won't forget. And that's the day that you got saved. And indeed, there's no other day that would compare to it. And one day when we come to breathe our last breath in this life, when we come to close our eyes for the last time, it will be that day that will be uppermost in our mind. It was a miraculous experience. It was a marvellous experience. It was also a momentous experience. You can be certain that the day that the Lord Jesus raised these three people from the dead was not only a day that they would never forget, but a day that they never got over. Every time, just think of it, each one of them passed by a cemetery, what would they have thought? They themselves had already been dead. And every time they would have walked past a cemetery, you can just imagine the shout of victory and thanksgiving that would have come from their very hearts and from their mouths. Can you imagine every time that they attended a funeral? I'm sure they could never forget that day when Christ raised them from the dead. And neither should we. We'll never forget that day when Christ quickened us. How can we when... Without doubt, it was the greatest day in our lives and it made such a change in us. You know, as we think about the conversion of Spurgeon, Spurgeon was only 16 when on a snowy Sunday morning he made his way into that little primitive Methodist church there in England. Because of the weather, there was very few people that turned out, just a handful of people. And in fact, the weather was so bad that even the preacher didn't turn up. 
Now, there's always a panic amongst the office bearers when the preacher doesn't turn up. And there was one poor deacon, and everyone else, the other office bearers laid hands on him and told him that he was responsible for taking the meeting. And they turned around, and when he, they told him, he simply got up into the pulpit, and he opened up uh, Isaiah chapter 45, and he began to read. And he read verse 22. Look unto me, and be ye saved, all the ends of the earth. For I am God, and there is none other. Six years later, at the age of 22, on the anniversary of his conversion, Spurgeon had the privilege of going back to that little church and preaching. And he preached upon that very same text that he got converted through. He began his sermon by saying, Six years ago today, as near as possible to this very hour, he said, I was in the gall of bitterness and in the bonds of iniquity, seeking rest and finding none. And I stepped within the house of God and sat there, afraid to look upward, lest I should be utterly cut off, and lest indeed his fierce wrath should consume me. The minister rose in his pulpit, as I have done this morning, and read this text. Look unto me, and be ye saved, all the ends of the earth, for I am God, and there is none else. And I looked at that moment, the very grace of faith was, was vouchsafed to me in that same instant. And he said, now I can think indeed of the very words that I can say in truth. Ere since by faith I saw the stream, thy flowing wound supply, redeeming love has been my theme and shall be till I die. <coughs> and Spurgeon wrote, I'll never forget the day as long as my memory holds its place. Nor can I help repeating this text whenever I remember that hour when I first knew the Lord. Spurgeon could never forget it. He could never forget that day, despite all that he did and all the, all the thousands of people that he led to the Lord. <coughs> that day, he said, was his greatest day. As I said, for me, it was the 24th of May, 1986. It was a Saturday morning. And I can still remember it as clear as day. I can remember exactly the very place that I was. I can remember exactly what it looked like. I can remember indeed the very face of the man that led me to the Lord. And I can remember the words that I spoke. And I can remember that day when the Lord quickened me from the dead. And what a miraculous, what a marvelous, and what a momentous day that was when I experienced the new life that there is to be offered in Christ. But then we also have here the evidence of a new life. I love the description one of the commentators uses when he says, a new life in Christ is like having the measles. I'd never heard that before. You ever heard that one? You ever heard that getting saved is like getting the measles? He says, if you've got it, it will pop out all over you. You ever heard that before? Someone gets saved and he says, if you've got it, it's like the measles. You can't hide it. Everyone will see it. And as you look at all three examples of the people that the Lord raised here from the dead, they all have the evidence of the new life. And if you look at each one of them, you can notice that evidence. If you think, first of all, there about Lazarus, in him we see the alteration of a new life. In John chapter 11 and verse 43, we're told, And when he thus had spoken, he cried with a loud voice, Lazarus, come forth. And he that was dead came forth, bound hand and foot with grave clothes, and his face 
was bound about with a napkin. Jesus saith unto them, Loose him and let him go. Now Lazarus had already had his funeral. Lazarus had already been buried, but in those days he was put into a burial tomb. He was bound hand and foot in grave clothes. But when the Son of God cried out, Lazarus, come forth. His condition was completely altered. He stepped out of that grave. Indeed, although he was covered with the wrappings and all the very trappings of death. You see, in those days, they, they wrapped them up a bit like a, a, a mummy, the Egyptian mummy, all wrapped up indeed in, uh, in cloth. And just imagine the sight that would have been to see what would have been almost a mummy walking out of, out of that tomb. No wonder the Bible says, Therefore, if any man be in Christ, he's a new creature. Old things are passed away. Behold, all things are become new. And a new life in Christ always results in a changed life. That person's never the same again. Salvation brings us out of the tomb. It brings us out of the bondage of sin and it sets us free and our life is completely altered by the new life that we're given in Christ. I can stand up today behind the pulpit and I can preach the gospel as a minister in the Free Presbyterian Church but I can tell you if you went back prior to 1986 you wouldn't have wanted me anywhere near the pulpit. What a different life I lived. And that's the experience and that's indeed the testimony of each one of us. And there are so many... I was reading indeed about a preacher in America years ago, a man from last century, a man by the name of Mordecai Ham. I thought that was a cracking name, Mordecai Ham. He held many gospel campaigns in America back in the 1930s. Many people were saved through his meetings. But what really grabbed my attention as I was reading about this man's life was one man who got saved and he was called Wyatt Larimore. Now he fascinated me when I read about him because he was known as the king of the Chattanooga underworld there in America. He was a racketeer and he was a liquor peddler. According to his own testimony, he'd stood before the courts for every conceivable crime, from as little as traffic violations all the way through to first-degree murder. He'd done it all. At the time, back in the 1930s, he was paying taxes on more than $200,000, which had been obtained that year just through illicit businesses. Chains of bootleg distilleries, gambling houses, and all of those men working under him. And he had over 300 men working in his illegal businesses. But to keep a promise to his young daughter, he went to one of the, the gospel meetings being held by Ham in this place called Chattanooga. Ham preached on the subject of God's last call. And Larimore came under great conviction. And after several days of mental and spiritual despair he went back to the meeting again and that night he was wonderfully and gloriously saved since he was now a christian the first thing he did was he went and he called his 300 employees together and he said to his 300 partners in crime boys we're through we're going to close down all the rackets we're going to bust all the rotten rotten liquor and that's exactly what he did he walked away from his life of crime and he actually went on then to make his living just through selling uh, fish in the streets of the city. But the Lord used him. And it is said that he gave his testimony in every single church in that town. What a difference. 
in a person's life. What makes the difference? That new life in Christ. Yes, before that, this man was walking, he was talking, he was breathing, but he was living for self and for sin. And then the Lord came in and made him a new creature in Christ. But then when we move on and we look at the daughter of Jairus and her being raised from the dead, we see the appetite for a new life. In Luke chapter 8 and verse 54, we're told, And he put them all out and took her by the hand and called, saying, Maid, arise. And her spirit came again, and she arose straightway, and he commanded to give her meat. Now notice the first thing the Lord did after the Lord gave her new life is that he commanded that something be given to her to eat. It would seem that she awoke from the sleep of death with an appetite. And just as physical hunger is a sign of physical life, so too spiritual hunger is a sign of spiritual life. And the new life that is offered to us in Christ produces a hunger for spiritual things. Paul says, as newborn babes, desire the sincere milk of the word that ye may grow thereby. And a new life results in a new desire. Before I got saved, there were things that I loved. And I had absolutely no time for God, no time for church or for anything. But when I got saved, everything changed. And my desires and my appetite changed. And before the things I used to love all of a sudden lost their attraction. And the things I used to despise suddenly I began to love. A good example of this appetite for spiritual things is found in 1 John chapter 2 and verse 3 where we read, And hereby we know that we know him if we keep his commandments. Now that little word keep was sometimes used to speak of a sailor who would have guided his ship at night by the stars. And John is describing how there's a desire for one's life to be guided even by the commandments of God. As I said, I was saved back in 1986. Now, prior to that day, I'd never, ever in my life set foot in a church on a Sunday. Never. For 23 years, I'd never, ever set foot in a church on a Sunday. Never went to Sunday school, never went to a children's meeting, never went to a youth fellowship meeting, certainly never set foot in a, in a Sunday service. The only times I would have been in church would have been the occasional wedding and funeral. But after I got saved, suddenly I wanted to go to church. I had this hunger within me to want to go to church. Why? What happened to me? Being raised from the dead, there was now in my heart an appetite for spiritual things. And that's one of the proofs that we're saved. That we suddenly have a hunger and a desire for the things of God. So new life not only brings an alteration to your life, but it creates an appetite for spiritual things. And then in the third example there that we have, we can notice in the widow of, son, of Nain's son, the activity of his new life. In Luke 7 and 14 it says, And he came and touched the buyer, and they that bare him stood still. And he said, Young man, I say unto thee, arise. And he that was dead sat up and began to speak, and he delivered him to his mother. Now notice carefully that when he was raised from the dead, he sat up and he began to speak. There was movement. There, were, there was activity, which was the evidence that he was alive again. That activity was the evidence. Reminds me of two men. I was at a funeral 
some time ago, some years back. And uh, as the funeral service was over, I happened to go past two gentlemen that were talking. And uh, as they were talking one to the, the other, I heard one say, if that were you in the coffin, what would you want your friends to say about you? And I thought, well, that's an interesting question. But his friend was very quick. He said, I'd want them to say, look, he's moving. In other words, he's still alive. You see, the activity proves that there's life. And a dead person doesn't move. In fact, a dead person doesn't do anything. They're dead. But a living person, they respond and they reveal that they're alive by their actions. And that is why a new life in Christ always produces activity. And the day that I got saved, I not only wanted to go to church, but I wanted to tell the world what had happened to me. I wanted to tell everyone. I went straight home. First person I told was my wife. And then on the Monday when I got to work, I then went round all the fellows I worked with and I told each one of them that I'd got saved. I couldn't help it. I'd been raised from the dead. I had a new life within me and I wanted to speak up and tell everyone else about the wonder and the thrill and the joy of salvation and that eternal security that was now mine. And so there's always the, the evidence of a new life in Christ. But if a person acts like a corpse, that's a good indication that they probably are a corpse. So I wonder if there's any spiritual life in you this evening. Is there any evidence tonight? If you were taken up in a court of law and you were charged with the crime of being a Christian, is there any evidence in your life to prove that you're saved? Because it's not only the experience of the new life and the evidence of the new life, but last of all, there's also the effect of the new life. You see, in closing, let me just point out two things that were the result of those who were raised from the dead. First of all, the praise that are brought to the Lord. In Luke 7 and 16, it says, And there came a fear on all, and they glorified God, saying that a great prophet is risen up among them. Uh, among us and that God hath visited his people and this rumor of him went forth throughout all Judea and throughout all the region round about this miracle of someone being raised from the dead after being buried for four days because always remembering that in the Middle East when someone dies they're buried the same day they die because of the intense heat it doesn't take very long before the body begins to go off and so you could be speaking to someone in the morning and you could be attending their funeral that same afternoon. And so you find that it resulted in the Lord being glorified and praised. And a new life in Christ is a testimony to the Lord's saving power and ability. And every believer in this meeting has that testimony of the amazing grace of God in our lives. The salvation of, any, of anyone is more about the Lord than it is about anything else. It's a demonstration of his power to take poor, worthless, hell-deserving sinners who are dead in trespasses and sins and to breathe that new life, that eternal life, even into them. And then we find also the people that brought to the Lord. In John 11 and 45, we're told, Then many of the Jews which came to Mary and had seen the things which Jesus did, believed on him. What the Saviour did for Lazarus resulted in many people getting gloriously converted and turning to him. You know, the greatest spiritual advertisements in the world 
are those who are raised from the dead. And that's why this morning as we're thinking about being good advertisements for Christ, having indeed that joy of salvation, having indeed the very testimony of the saving grace of God, going through the same trials and tribulations of everyone else in the world, and because you're a Christian, even going through more sometimes, but being a good ambassador for Christ. You know, it's not a great big sign you need out the front. It's a congregation of people that know that they're saved and are able to tell the world that that's what the Lord has done for them. You know, the change made in the lives of the daughter of Jairus in Capernaum, the widow's son in Nain and Lazarus in Bethany, resulted in so many more others being brought to Christ. The change made in the life of one 16-year-old boy by the name of Charles Haddon Spurgeon resulted in thousands being saved. I wonder tonight if the Lord were to move in this meeting and the Lord were to save you, how the Lord would use you to rescue many others from a lost eternity. There's a new life. There's a wonderful life. There's an abundant life and an eternal life in Christ. And the Lord offers it tonight fully and freely. If you just look unto him and live, will you look by faith tonight and receive him as your own and personal saviour for Jesus' sake. Amen.